You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Rebecca Weintraub, assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and an associate faculty member at Ariadne Labs, a joint center for health systems innovation at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. This call was recorded at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Thursday, March 4th. Dr. Weintraub, do you have any opening comments? Sure, pleased to start us off. And um, so want to just first start us off in um, kind of my mindset as a provider. So I'm both a physician and a vaccinator within the state of Massachusetts and have been very much focused on how do we work upstream? How do we think about the planning involved in this unprecedented vaccine campaign and looking at patterns from past pandemics and past mass vaccination programs? And that work early in really a year ago now when we began articulating that and reminding the general public that we need billions of doses of the vaccine was one which many people weren't prepared to hear about or thinking that that would be within our arsenal. And so the second part of this message, which I think I'm sure many of you are also following is how many of these vaccine candidates who truly are home runs. The idea that we can avert death and avert hospitalization is just a tremendous addition to our toolkit. What's unfortunately been striking is for our state leaders in the United States is that they've had such narrow windows to plan and pleased to walk you through anyone who's interested kind of the changes between the National Academies, uh, a framework for equitable effective allocation versus ACIP and that source data set has, has powered many of the find your place in the vaccine line and several other entities on this call to be able to help and assist. Um, I'm pleased to share that data source with those interested. Unfortunately, what we're finding today is, you know, these, not only this window has closed, but in many ways the pressure on these state leaders who've been so beleaguered is so intense at this point to ensure the vaccine is deployed with scale, speed, and equity. And we've also been able to detail several enabling factors of why the states have been able to adapt as they can um, in the midst of this unprecedented time. So we've been curating those tactics and sharing uh, with state leaders. And what we're really thinking about now in many ways is the, the potential vaccine opportunities ahead. Where are their daily acts in our healthcare services, in how we're thinking about food scarcity, where a vaccine could be offered to our most vulnerable? And think of this as the third phase. So the first phase here is that we're still in low supply, high demand, and we will kind of be in this bullwhip fashion where later in May and June, likely supply will be sufficient, but we'll truly need a much more robust set of delivery channels to serve the most vulnerable. So I'll stop there, hopefully that was helpful. Um, and I just will also note, um, we did write about the dangers of vaccine nationalism, and I continue to kind of tag all the tips that are happening between the UK and the EU, the overordering that's really constrained the supply globally that will lead to the persistence of this pandemic. Great. Thank you very much, Dr. Weintraub. I have a quick request um, from one of our um, TV reports. If you could just tilt your, your camera down a little bit so there's less headroom. I think that's pretty good. All right, uh, first question. Doctor, thanks for doing this. My question is, with, with the vaccine rollout, as it's continuing, we seem to be seeing a reduction in people going to get tests. The perception being, I got a vaccine, I don't need to get tested anymore. A, is that true? 
B, what would you say to people if it's not true who are taking that attitude? That, that's a great question. And once again, when we think about the vaccine, it's one element of our toolkit to decrease and to first protect you and to decrease transmission. So we absolutely are continuing to ask people to mask, test if they're concerned about an exposure, practice quarantining, and to remind folks that it's truly after that, that second dose, two weeks after that second dose, that protection begins. When you've seen what's going on with our own testing website here in Massachusetts, is that, I mean, you may know better than, I would think you would know better than I, is that pretty typical of what's happening across the country and around the world, or are we having more problems than others? Um, just to make sure, Brian, you're speaking of the vaccine website, correct? Not testing? Yes, yeah, the people going in to try to get appointments, yes. Yeah, so um, I, I share your concerns. So the software was not built for this type of demand. And we had time to prepare an online scheduling service that could manage this type of surge um, interest. You know, when we, in a sense, for example, across the state, we made a new additional million people became eligible for the vaccine. And you're see, what you're seeing right now is there's changes in the back end happening. Um, it is different state by state. There are certain states that have been able to manage um, the surge differently. It also depends on population size, interest, <laughs> and accessibility. Um, I think many folks are questioning it, why we deployed a system that was only online to begin with. And there's obviously other ways to deploy scheduling, and you're starting to see that happen, especially um, in metropolitan areas. So I suspect we're going to see you know, constant iteration to the software and paper-based and mobile and other ways that we're recruiting folks to come in and receive the vaccine who are eligible. And my last question, as you see what's going on in Texas and in Mississippi, where the governors are removing an awful lot of the safeguards, how concerned are you? Very, yeah. So, I mean, once again, we are in the midst of a pandemic and transmission is happening considering the amount of circulating virus in our communities and we continue to see community transmission. So the vaccine will protect us better if we all at the same time mitigate transmission and utilize the playbook that we have, masking, testing, and practicing physical distancing. Thank you, doctor, appreciate it. Uh, next question. Hello, doctor, how are you? Very good, hi, David. Thank you for talking to us, and I'm going to keep it a little Massachusetts-centric for just a bit longer. The governor, it's, it's Stampede Thursday here in Massachusetts. We make available tens of thousands of appointments, and people spend their morning trying to get one. The governor seems to suggest each week there's nothing we can do. It's just supply uh, is not what demand is. Is he right about that? Could we fine-tune available appointments to the demand? And, and make it so that people don't have to spend hours. And what about the cost of that? People, you know, when I speak with some people who spend hours online, they tell me they, they've just given up. They're not gonna try to get an appointment for until the supply of vaccine becomes more readily available. And these are people sometimes in their, in their 70s and 80s who, who have who, given up on the process. So that's my questions. Yes, no, thank you, David. And I share that concern. I wrote about this in January as well. So first to take a step back, it was quite clear in December, and I can share with you the tracking that we've done, that states were concerned they would not receive the weekly replenishment as requested to Operation Warp Speed. 
And if you remember in that second week in December, the vaccine supply was proportioned related to your adult population, not necessarily your COVID exposure or COVID risk or COVID deaths, death across the states. And each week, many of the states did not receive the replenishment for first and second dose that they suspected via the data ecosystem that Operation Warp Speed generated. And so many states, Tennessee, Massachusetts, have, been Ill, have really been forced to create their own spreadsheets of scenario planning, assuming they would not receive the weekly replenishments as requested. We can talk through why that was. Um, but I have to say the predictions have gotten better and better since January 20th, and the Biden administration made a very strong commitment to give states three weeks notice of the vaccine supply they would be receiving for the approved vaccines. So this week they know three weeks ahead of time, I'll receive X number of doses on each Tuesday of the week, um, including this week, Johnson & Johnson. So many folks would say, let's match the supply and then open up an accord a similar number of appointment sites related to the state deployment. So that's one matching that needs to happen. This is actually a little bit more complicated than what I'm describing, because as you remember, there's a federal deployment direct to federal entities within the state. There's a federal deployment direct to federally qualified health centers. And there's a federal deployment of vaccine directly to the retail pharmacy program, for example, CVS, Walgreens, and Walmart. So the state may not have a full picture on any one day, but over a course of a week, they have an good solid estimate right now, the number of vaccine vials they'll receive. And then the secondary issue here is, does everyone have the syringe they need to extract that last dose out of the vial as well? And there's likely gonna be scarcity of these deadweight syringes in the future. Yeah, just a quick follow-up about that. Do you know the status of those uh, uh, low or dead space syringes? How many, how many vials are using them now? And how many, you know, we're, we're probably not up to 100%. Do we have any data on how much is being wasted because we're not using the best syringe? Unfor no, unfortunately, I don't have access to that data, but um, eager if anyone else finds it um, to analyze it together. Great. Uh, next question. Yes, thank you, Dr. Weintraub. Um, I'm writing a story about uh, frontline essential workers and their vaccination challenges. And the main one is that most states are not following the ACIP guidance um, to put them in the 1B group, but are following what came later, the HHS um, recommendation that people age 65 and older be vaccinated as soon as possible. So the, the grocery store workers, for example, are, are seeing a lot of delays and are kind of wondering why. So I thought I would put the question to you. Um, do you, and from a science perspective, do you have a sort of, if you can comment, do you think the science supports one over, you know, the other, for example, essential, sort of the ACIP, I guess, position versus what the HHS was saying? That That's a great question. Actually, um, is it, a, can I share my screen here? Is that, that um, hold on a second. Yes, you should be able to do that now. Terrific. Just might be able easier to answer with the visual here. And thank you. You can see the slide that I'm showing. Um, Some principles. On, on a 
phone, but just to answer um, your question. So we've done the data wrangling to share with you the differences between the National Academies guidelines and ACIP. And as you can see here, we've changed the order by occupation, health status, and residence. And um, acknowledging those three dimensions, because at this point, you're absolutely right. So the frontline essential workers were reprioritized by ASIP. And, um, and the discussion I think many of you are following this week, if you look up to the National Academies guidelines, is that teachers were called out in their framework um, and they were not determined as a priority group within the ASIP guidelines. And now that's become a priority group that many states are, in a sense, reordering. Um, within the pink bars of the age status. So, you know, fundamentally what we're seeing is a pattern where states are trying to simplify this. They view this as deploying the ACE of guidelines as both too complicated and the messaging has become one coming from a governor's office, for example, um, versus the health commissioner's office. So we've seen several states deploy an age band, um, for example, the state of Connecticut. And and there's concern that in that simplification, some would say the simplification leads to equity because you, in a sense, confirm your age status, you receive the vaccine. Other entities have said this actually makes it quite difficult for frontline essential workers um, to be prioritized because their risk and exposure are quite clear, but they may not fit, they don't fit in those age bars. So this is very much an ongoing um, dynamic here. And this, other dimension of this complexity <laughs> is obviously people are viewing what each states are doing and there is some sense of vaccine tourism where people are migrating to a state, for example, or a county where they can receive vaccination. Yeah, it seems like, thank you. So just to clarify, um, the, the National Academy of Science recommendation here sort of seems to um, mirror a little bit of the ACIP one um, and that the age 65 plus group is after the frontline critical risk workers, correct? Um, so that, that's correct. So age 65 is after, that's not necessarily what we're seeing deployed today. So right. you know, these are guidelines given to the states and then the interpretation from the states it, um, is quite different. The other dimension that um, ACIP did not recognize, but the states are deploying, 28 states are deploying, is this idea of using a disadvantage index, redeploying vaccine to counties that have been hard hit by COVID-19, the mm -hmm. social vulnerability index. And we've now seen eight additional states in January and February, February begin deploying that um, in the midst of the replenishment week by week. Mm -hmm. Because the frontline critical risk workers, like grocery store workers, they have had outbreaks. There's been several in California and then Whole Foods in Detroit. So they, um, they feel they're, you know, exposed and uh, uh, definitely at risk. So I was just wondering if you have a personal yeah. opinion on this. Uh, yes, I mean, I, I, if I share the reason why I'm sharing these differences here is because I think we lost some of the design elements for equity when we moved from the National Academy guidelines to ACIP. And there was the rationale of putting the frontline critical workers earlier because of both the difficulty they may have of accessing the vaccine and you're absolutely right, their daily exposure 
to the virus due to the nature of their work. Okay, thank you. That was helpful. Uh, next question. Hey, thanks for taking my question. Um, uh, thank you, Dr. Weintraub. Uh, so here in Florida, we, we've seen a lot of controversies around both a lack of equity and some perceived favoritism in, in how the vaccine has been distributed here. Um, and the Department of Health has really taken a back seat uh, and it's being all run through the state's emergency management division and, and by the governor. Uh, we recently reported on how much latitude the state is giving to private partners like Publix, um, basically letting them send vaccines wherever they want without even a plan. Um, and we've also know that the wealthy zip codes here, at least in South Florida, are outpacing less wealthy ones on vaccination rates and white people are outpacing minority groups on vaccination rates. So that's the context. But um, my question has to do with a, a recent executive order from Governor Ron DeSantis where um, we've officially lowered the age from 65 for people who are deemed to be medically vulnerable, but the state policy is that you need a signed physician's note, um, you know, saying that you are at a severe at risk for severe COVID and, and you are, uh, and that they're recommending you to get this vaccine. So I've spoken to public health experts who say that this is, you know, a major barrier for access that will disproportionately uh, impact low-income people. And I was hoping to get your thoughts on this specifically. Um, and also, if you have them, your, your thoughts on the rollout here in, in general um, in Florida. Thank you. Very important point. I, I absolutely agree. Um, we actually wrote an op-ed for the Boston Globe in January regarding this issue. So it is a barrier. Remember, most Americans do not have a primary care provider. Many Americans have actually delayed their own healthcare preventative screenings during this time and their health has deteriorated in the midst of the pandemic. So I would actually say some of our most vulnerable populations have added their comorbid access has gotten more complex because of the nature of the pandemic and their limited access to food, exercise, and the, just the stress of the pandemic itself. So in January, um, Atul Gawande, Kate Miller and I wrote a piece about self-attestation that we believe we should trust most Americans, most Folks know their comorbidity status, they could identify their age status. And in order to move with both speed, scale, and equity, we should utilize self-attestation as a means for folks to find their place online. And this has been reinforced when we've asked folks for, for example, um, I am a resident of X. That requirement has deterred people from coming to access a vaccine, concerned what happens if they share their identification, considering um, other, other aspects of, the, of their status. So I think that's an unfortunate fence that's gotten built and that will not actually lead to, to us having an equitable or effective deployment of this vaccine. And, and do you know if any states are taking that approach of self-attestation or, or, or is this doctor's note approach common in your view? Um, I, I haven't actually done the work of asking other health departments, but I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yes, I'm pleased to send you a list. It's okay. incredibly varied. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and if you remember, we have you know over 3,000 counties and the counties are in, organized in 64 jurisdictions regarding the immunization registry. Okay. So you're absolutely right. We're seeing significant heterogeneity of practice. And when there's a private sector, for example, uh, deployer, Walgreens, Walmart, Publix, 
Krugers, whoever it may be, that's getting interpreted differently, um, for example, by, by the entity that's running a mass vaccination site. Yeah, well, here the situation is that hospitals were given latitude to vaccinate kind of anyone they deem to be medically vulnerable, but it's at these state sites and these retail pharmacies that folks have to provide a, a doctor's note. So that seems also to cut across the same barrier, right? If you're not a current hospital patient, if you don't have access to health care, you're, you're kind of out of luck. That, that's exactly right. Even creating a new patient file. So when I'm vaccinating you, I have to create a new record if you're not a patient within my hospital system. There's actually an administrative cost to creating that record. And so you can imagine why people are first, for example, for efficiency sake, vaccinating the patients within their populations, but we have thousands of people we need to be reaching. I think the second piece that's important regarding all this documentation is it actually is confusing for the general public. This is a free vaccine. We've already paid $18 million to produce for the discovery side of the mRNA vaccines, for example. And when people have to bring documentation, they're getting concerned that they may be charged, for example, which is also leading to a, a set of um, a, a population set that is just so concerned to incur a cost in the midst of their economic uncertainty. Got it. Well, thank you so much for your insights. I, I really appreciate it. And I'll take a look at the op-ed. Terrific. Thank you. Terrific. Okay. Uh, so thank next, sure thing. Uh, next question. Yes, hi. Uh, thanks for uh, taking our questions today. Um, I just wanted to uh, make sure I, I understood what you were saying before about um, uh, age-based systems versus um, the ACIP systems. So are, are you saying that um, it, it, uh, the age-based systems are, are inferior and, and shouldn't be used? Um, and could you, if that's the case, could you uh, explain why that is? That's a great question. I, you, can, you caught me there because it clearly was vague. So thank you <laughs> uh, for listening. So I'm, first, I just want to acknowledge that this is changing at a pace that the public cannot understand. So this decision by the state of Connecticut to go by an age status band is different than the ACIP recommendations. And that, be, that was communicated by the governor's office and the governor communicated it. it this, this simplicity would actually lead to a more efficient rollout would lead to require, decrease requirements. You had to prove your age, not your comorbidities, for example, and that that in and of itself would lead to equity. And I question that. I understand why a governor wants a simple message because this is a complex, unprecedented process. Um, but age is not the only risk factor to think about how vulnerable are you to not only be infected by COVID-19, but unfortunately be hospitalized or even die from COVID-19. And so knowing those vulnerabilities and those ongoing daily risks, um, my recommendation is actually the National Academies, I think did an excellent job reviewing the evidence base. And that's how we ended up with these 13 priority populations and the ordering of those populations. So I guess my quick you know, answer here is age is, insuff is an insufficient and it's not, it's insufficient to say, age alone is the means by which we should allocate the scarce resource. Okay, thanks. So my second question is, uh, I'm wondering what, what you think about 
you know, considering the, the ramp up in vaccine supplies, I think Biden just said um, end of May, all adults who want a vaccine should be able to access it. Um, what do you think the shape of the pandemic is going to look like by summertime? Uh, do you think we'll be mostly return to normal, kind of not really return to normal or um, somewhere in between? How do you see that shaping up? That's a great question. I mean, I have to just take the global perspective for a moment right now. So the difficulty here is that we advanced economies have reserved 9.6 billion doses. So there's been 137 agreements signed between countries and drug makers. And those, those who have the most sufficient uh, reserve doses, Canada, the UK, Australia, the US, have left most countries with a continued, they'll continue to face scarcity for the rest of 2021. So I, this is insufficient to manage transmission, to manage a novel virus that we've deployed the scarce resource and allowed certain countries to procure, for example, in Canada, five times more doses than they need to cover the population. So what I predict is gonna happen is we're gonna see outbreaks and new variants in other parts of the world. And then those variants will come within the US borders and we'll have to think through how do we both contain the outbreaks and use vaccines as a tool to contain an outbreak and then think about boosters for the variants. Do you have a follow-up? I, I guess just, uh, and thanks for the global perspective. I think that's important and, and, gets, and gets lost sometimes. Um, but uh, <laughs> I, I guess just in general for the, for the US in, in light of the fact that, you know, we, yes. we are one of the fortunate countries that is going to have um, a, a lot of vaccines coming our way and most people getting them or eligible to get them. Um, does that mean like our summertime is going to be closer to normal in terms of the activities that we will be able to do? Or, or do you see it as being uh, less of a happy uh, uh, version of the future than that? <clears throat> yeah. Thank you, Joe. I mean, I, as an individual, don't have a crystal ball and I'm sitting here as a provider. What I suspect is that we will be wearing masks for the rest of this calendar year, that the ability of the mask to decrease transmission and its ability to protect you and others is, is significant. I think the question of different entities reopening and the data is quite clear. We can reopen schools in a safe way to decrease transmission. We can operationalize our outpatient care facilities. We have been able to decrease transmission, for example, with our skilled nursing facilities and acute care and rehab facilities. So I think there's tremendous lessons to learn from there of how do we manage in the midst of circulating a circulating novel virus. And on a personal front, I did learn how to build these protocols. I was a camp physician for two overnight camps in August of this past year, <laughs> it seems like a long time ago, August, 2020. And we had you know, two to 300 children in these camps. We had, did not have one case of COVID-19. So I think this will take a good amount of diligence and asking to ensure children, we decrease transition within um, both children and the adolescent population. I think regarding the vaccine and its uptake, 
I believe with increased supply locally, and it's being offered by your primary care provider, for example, your local pharmacist, being be able to access it in close proximity to your residents, we're gonna see ongoing and tremendous demand across the nation. Are you all set? Um, yes, thanks, I appreciate that. It, it also, just if, if you were part of that uh, main summer camp uh, MMWR, um, Thanks for that. That was a, a fascinating study. That's it, though. Thanks. Have a great day. Great. Uh, next question. Um, just wondering if you could sort of help paint a picture of what you think is going to happen once we are sort of flooded with vaccine by uh, the end of May. What What is that going to look like? Can we start shipping vaccine abroad, should we? Uh, or how can we convince other Americans to, to take the vaccine? That's a great question. So I think right now is the window to prepare last mile delivery channels. So this is where primary care providers typically vaccinate 46% of Americans. And we have not made the vaccine supply available. We now know not only the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, but the mRNA vaccines are more stable. It'll be easier to administer these vaccines. So first we need to ensure our primary care providers can be part of the delivery of the COVID-19 vaccine. In addition, I think to other settings, I think we're going to see the vaccine availability, for example, at food banks where people are facing food scarcity, they'll be offered a vaccine in other places where community, vulnerable communities are, are congregating. I think the question will be, how do we redistribute our vaccinator workforce to these settings? So it's a bit of a operational excellence question of um, ensuring we have both the workforce and supply. And I absolutely agree, man. I think we had the type of leadership in the Biden administration, Samantha Power at USAID, and it's been quite clear with the very quick uh, resumption of our roles and responsibilities with the World Health Organization and COVAX that we will be participating as a nation. At the same time, we have to acknowledge we are delaying the deployment globally by our procurement. Uh, processes. And um, obviously, it's not only Canada and the UK, but Australia also ordered 2.5 uh, uh, more doses than they have population. So we hope this will be modeled by the US early and those donations will be redistributed. It does make us question, you know, how we need to think about this these types of agreements where a country could procure more doses than their population. That might be for another day. Right. I guess I was just wondering also about the balance between how, how much do we push our own citizens to, to get vaccinated who are hesitant versus sending these shots somewhere else? Yes. Well, I mean, one thing that is quite clear is vaccine confidence has risen when the vaccine is locally available. And um, we've been looking at the effects of the vaccine coming to your locality or, or you knowing, an individual knowing that their neighbor who's a nurse or their cousin um, who's an essential worker has received the vaccine, that propagates concentric circles and increased vaccine confidence and demand. So uh, I would suspect because the horizontal cooperation between pharma companies is so significant as we're watching Merck participate, Novartis participate, that the supply won't be constrained and we'll be able to do that type of replenishment and then the Biden administration will kind of hit a moment where they'll be, be confident enough to start sending supply elsewhere. 
I hope you know that will just lead to continued interest in the vaccine, and I suspect we'll be vaccinating in the U.S. throughout this calendar year. Thanks. Uh, I am going to do something I usually don't do and call on somebody. Yeah, that would actually be awesome. Um, hi, thank you. And I'm sorry if I missed this earlier, I just got on. But in Ohio, we've seen about 5% of all vaccine doses that have gone out go to Black Ohioans, who are about 13% of the population. How did something so predictable actually end up happening? And are there any specific strategies or things governments need to start doing to correct the ship a little bit? Thank you, that, that is a great question. And this is in a sense why we tried to work upstream, which sounds you know old now, <laughs> but this is in July and August of 2020. How do we help prepare states to design this deployment with equity, not only by your exposure, but by race, occupation, um, and, and, and other factors. One thing I will say that, um, and I don't know the exact data set in Ohio, but I will say, I suspect that the data is, almost all the vaccine registries, the data is incomplete. There's supposed to be 22 to 24 data elements per individual vaccinated. And what we're seeing in trying to audit some of the data is that in many instances, unfortunately, race, for example, was not delineated um, in the data that's then, in a sense, uploaded to the CDC data lake. The question will kind of become over time, not only how do we help ensure the data is better, but I think we're gonna to continue to see this pattern that you're speaking to. And I think it does speak to something bigger than the vaccine and the deployment of one element, but um, the unfortunate nature of our healthcare system where there's been um, a way in which certain individuals are able to find their place in the vaccine line that may not be about eligibility um, and how this vaccine was deployed um, and we've acknowledged first in December to long-term care facilities, um, healthcare workforce, but second by these age brackets. So if we look, and I apologize, I don't know the data in Ohio as well, but in Massachusetts, if we look at age brackets, we know that African-American men, their longevity is not the same as white men. So when we say 75 plus, that in of itself is redistributing the vaccine um, to a, a white population. So in many ways, it's these allocation principles that need to be multidimensional that has led, I would say, and propagated this inequity in access. Sorry for that long-winded answer. Are you all set? I am also all set, and yes, that that definitely. Great. Um, I have a phone, um, an email question. Um, she said that, uh, and I know you touched on this a little bit, but how important does testing remain and why? <laughs> so wonderful question. So first, we have to remember that most Americans are not vaccinated. And even after we receive the first vaccine of either the Pfizer or Moderna, you are not fully protected. The early data on your ability to transmit to others is incomplete, though positive. So at this point, we have to assume there are, even if you receive that first vaccine, so in between that time period between your first and second doses, you can be an asymptomatic carrier. You could transmit to others. So 
what we do know is the virus is circulating in our communities. And so one of the most effective ways to understand has I been infected or could I be infected someone is to get tested. And the idea of deploying the rapid test is one that Dr. Minna has spoken about quite urgently. And we all agree this needs to be deployed alongside the vaccine and actually would be, it'd be quite important to have both available to the general public over time. Okay, great. Um, I think that's our last question that we have up so far. If anybody has any last questions, please let me know. Um, if not, it looks like that might be it. Um, Dr. Weintraub, do you have any other final comments before we go today? Thank you. I mean, I first I just want to thank all of you as reporters, because this is quite a complex dynamic to be uh, in involved in. And I think um, I'll just acknowledge that many of the state officials that I speak to have been, are so beleaguered by the pace of the pandemic, what's happened to their own workforce, and the lags in uh, notification in December and January put them in a situation where they did not have sufficient information to plan this rollout. So we're seeing a significant catch up from um, where they were thwarted. <laughs> I think it was like the first quarter uh, of, of activity. And in many ways, we're trying to march this out so other countries can um, learn from the US experience and do this differently so that equity speed and scale are all strategies that are integrated within their plans for the vaccine rollout. This concludes the March 4th press conference.